Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, brothers and sisters, and turn with me for our scripture reading, for our sermon text this morning. We are going to read together and look together into the book of Acts. This morning we'll look at chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, all the way to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And we won't read the entire passage, but we'll read pieces within that section. Acts chapter 1, verse 12, through to chapter 2, verse 4. And please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Skip down to verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Josephus, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Eustace, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is God's holy word for us as people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we do ask now that you would bless not only the reading of your inspired, God-breathed scriptures, but that you would now inspire and bless the proclamation of your holy word today. May the truth of this text come forth and stand forth and fill our hearts today. And as we look across the scriptures to see what you have for us, may you write your truth upon our hearts and conform us a little bit more today into the image of our heavenly, holy Savior, Jesus. For it's in his name we ask and pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so I feel like my voice is about maybe three quarters, two thirds strength today. So this could be mercifully short. So uh, to that end, be praying. 
This morning, <clears throat> we are beginning a new series, a short series. Right now, it's going to be about four weeks in length. It's a short series on the topic of discipleship. And we're going to be looking mainly at passages in the book of Acts about the early church and what discipleship looked like for that original church there in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Now, to set up, sort of introduce this series, I want to first give an explanation for why this topic. And you may think, well, if it's in the Bible, it doesn't really need much of justification. You just, it's in the Bible, you just preach it. Well, that's true, but how do you, how do you decide? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in there you, I could preach. Why this? Why now? Well, a little bit about the importance of discipleship. You'll recall that at the end of the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus gives the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, Jesus says in the last three verses of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, it says, Jesus came and said to them, these are his disciples, he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You'll notice the famous passage there, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples. And really, in Greek, there isn't a word for make. There's not like a direct Greek word underneath the English word make there. It's that... Make disciples is just one word in Greek, and it really just means disciple them. Go disciple the nations. These are the marching orders that Jesus leaves with his church as, he's, as he has risen from the dead and is about to ascend back to heaven. This is the mission. And so the first reason uh, <clears throat> that I want to mention for why discipleship is so important is because this is the mission of the church. This is what Jesus has left a church on earth to do. We are to make disciples, to disciple all nations. And he tells us how we're going to do that. We're going to baptize the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are going to teach the nations to observe, to keep, to obey, to do all that Jesus has commanded. There's a book by John Piper that's called, What Jesus Demands of the World. And it's sort of based on this idea. What does Jesus expect of the world? What are all those things that he has commanded us to observe and to do? As we make disciples, we are supposed to go to people. We're supposed to tell them the gospel. We're supposed to baptize those who believe along with their households. And we are to teach those disciples how to obey Jesus. And this is the mission of the church. That's the first reason for why discipleship is so important. It's what we're here to do. It's not the only thing we're here to do, but it is one of the things that we're primarily here to do. There's a second reason that it's important, discipleship's important, is because if this is true, or should I say, since this is true, Matthew 18, uh, 28, 18 to 20, since this is true, then becoming a Christian means... Becoming a disciple of Jesus. There's no such thing as someone who just believes in Jesus, but isn't following Jesus. 
Oh, yeah, there are people out there who say that. Oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, are you following him? Well, of course not. But I, you know, but I believe, I could, I could pass the pop quiz. Who is Jesus, the Son of God? Did Jesus die on the cross? Yes. Does, does God love me? Yes. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. And you can check all the right boxes on the quiz, and it have absolutely no relevance to your life if we watched you from week to week. So you can say, you can say things or, or nod your head yes to all the right questions, but if you're not actively, actually, factually following Jesus, you're not really his disciple. And if the Great Commission is go to the nations and turn those unbelieving pagans who don't believe in me and don't follow me into my disciples, then becoming a Christian means becoming a follower of Jesus. So that when you put your faith in Jesus, you're, yes, you're trusting him and his perfect person and his perfect work to be for you the full and sufficient salvation from all your sins, the guarantee of your eternal life, and that's faith alone, and that's the gospel. But included in that act of faith is a commitment of loyalty to actually belong to him forever. There's commitment involved, and that's why you can't separate faith and works. You can't say, well, I believe over here, but you'd never know it if you watched how I lived. They're not separable like that. So becoming a Christian means becoming a disciple. And that means essential to your Christian faith, essential to your Christian life, brother and sister, here at the Forks, is that you are an active follower of Jesus. You're actually engaged in discipleship. You are a disciple. Discipleship's important, and we're talking about it in the next few weeks because it's the mission of the church to make disciples. It's essential to being a saved person that you are a disciple. And then third, we see in the ministry of Paul that he considered this to be something that is worth the full vigor of his ministry efforts. Paul considered discipleship to be the thing that he was called to labor and toil to accomplish in the churches he founded. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, where Paul brings these two things together, the mission of the church and and what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a Christian. He brings these together, and in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 28, he says... Talking about Jesus here, he says, Him, Christ, we proclaim, that's preaching, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So notice what Paul thinks he's supposed to do there in Colossians. He proclaims, he preaches Christ, he teaches the gospel, he preaches Jesus, and he warns people and he teaches people with all wisdom for this purpose, so that he can present everybody mature in Christ. So what's the goal of preaching and warning and teaching? What's the goal of that? Your Christian maturity. And Paul says, I struggle and I toil with all the power God will give me to see to it that you guys become mature in Christ. And that is the closest thing you'll find in the Bible to a definition of discipleship. 
So let me put it this way. If I had to give you my definition of discipleship based on these things we've seen so far, I would say this. This is what discipleship is. Discipleship is the disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. And discipline is the root idea of discipleship. The disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. And all the, all the, all the key words in there matter. This is a process. This is something that takes time. Right? It, you have to develop. You have to make, you have to take steps. You have to go through a procedure. You have to actually spend time, invest time before you're going to arrive at Christian maturity. It's a process. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes time. It takes development. But it's not just a willy-nilly, you know, freestyling process where you just make it up as you go. No, this is a disciplined process where you actually put some things in place to help walk you in this process, to walk you through this process. This is why Paul says that we warn and we teach with all wisdom. Okay? We actually think. We try to use our heads and use our wisdom and use practicality to discipline this process. And we warn and we teach. Don't do that. Do that. Don't do that. Believe that, don't believe that. Go this direction, not that way. We warn, don't go over there. We teach, go that way, do it that way. And we proclaim Christ all through the process. And we use our wisdom to figure out how we go through this process. It's disciplined. It's intentional. It's directed somewhere with a purpose. Disciplined process. The disciplined process of growing this is an organic thing. You begin your Christian life and you have a new heart. You're born again, filled with the Spirit. And now there's this, it's almost like you're a, like a little baby Christian, right? An infant in Christ. And then you grow and you develop. And you develop different skills and different muscles and different abilities. And, and it's, it is a process of organic growth. The Christian you begin... The Christian that you are when you begin isn't what you should look like at the end. This is what Paul complains about in 1 Corinthians. He says, you guys ought to be a lot more mature now and able to eat solid food, but I'm still feeding you milk because you're still little babies. <laughs> you're still little baby Christians, and I wish you would grow. And I want you to grow. It's a disciplined process of growing in Christian maturity. Christian maturity. Learning about your faith... Learning about how to be a Christian in all of the changing situations of life. In all the different contexts of life. Learning what it means to follow Jesus and be faithful to Him right where God has put you in your own unique family and circumstances. And it may not look identically to the way it looks for this guy with that family and that circumstance. Faithfulness for that man or woman might be a little different because of their unique situation than it is for yours. This is why it takes wisdom to figure out how do we be Christian, fully faithful and obedient to Jesus right where we are, and you're growing in your maturity to be a strong, healthy, vibrant Christian who's able to endure. So in this series, what we're going to be looking at is what I'm calling, I'm calling the series The Anatomy of Discipleship. 
the anatomy of discipleship. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at those vital organs, the anatomy of how we grow in Christian maturity. And this morning we're going to look at what I'm calling the lifeblood of discipleship. The lifeblood of discipleship, and that's prayer. So as we turn to our text this morning, I want us to look first at the context of what's happening here in the book of Acts at the start of the Christian church. So in Acts, where we pick up our text, Jesus tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promised spirit. Back in uh, verses, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, um, Jesus tells them uh, to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, 4 and 5. It says, uh, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he says, all right, you guys, you guys need to go back to Jerusalem. You need to hunker down. You need to stay and wait. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come. Your job right now is to wait. And so they gather together in the upper room, we're told, in our passage in verse 12. Then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Now that's where the Great Commission was given, the Mount of Olives, back in Matthew 28. They get this Great Commission and he says, now guys, before you go out and make all those disciples, that's what you got to do, but just hold on a second. You're not quite ready yet. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. And so they did. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. They've got this great commission in their heads. They're thinking about these things. They're thinking about Jesus being raised from the dead. They're, tons of things are going through their minds here. And so they get into this upper room in verse 13. When they had entered Jerusalem, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And then he gives a list of the apostles, everyone except Judas Iscariot. And verse 14 says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So they gather in Jerusalem, and they start a prayer meeting. And that's why this first point is called, Pentecost was a prayer meeting. It didn't start with them just walking out and preaching and everything happening. No, it started with them going back to Jerusalem and committing together and devoting themselves. We are going to stay here like Jesus said and we are going to wait on Him. And we are going to pray. They were devoted to prayer. And here are some of the things that resulted from this extended days-long prayer meeting that they had. And these effects spill over, not just from the day of Pentecost, but they ripple through the early chapters of Acts. Look at some of these things that results from the church at prayer. First of all, the very first thing they do is what we just did a few minutes ago. They elected new officers. Right? We just repeated a process that they did on day one as a church. They elected new officers. Now, they didn't do it the we didn't do it the way they did. They rolled dice. <laughs> and maybe we are rolling the dice on people like Ron. We don't know. I'm saying. 
We don't know. No, Ron. No, no. Right? Sometimes you feel like you're rolling the dice. No. They cast lots. Lord, if it lands on six, we'll vote for Ron. Snake eyes, right? That's how they did it, all right? And they could do that because they're apostles, you know. Do not try this at home, right? <laughs> so they elected officers first thing. They, you, know, you know what they did first thing? They became Presbyterians. That's... <laughs> they get together and they pray. And the first thing they're asking God for is, we need to replace Judas Iscariot. We've got to replace the betrayer. So, Lord, show us who, show us who the new apostle is going to be. And that's how they elected a new officer. They prayed, and God showed them. He directed them to the person that He wanted. And that's that's the part we didn't actually read it, but that's verses fifteen. They explain why they're doing this in verses fifteen to twenty, and then the part we read where they cast lots to the end of chapter 1. So they elect new officers. Now this process gets repeated in the book of Acts much later. Years later, the church is still doing this. In chapter, in chapter 13, they're still doing this. Uh, now there were in the church at Antioch, this is Acts 13.1, prophets and teachers, uh, Barnabas and Simeon, and he goes through a list. And it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So God raised up officers in the local church through prayer. God raised up missionaries to go and continue that great commission through prayer. The Holy Spirit is building his church and sending his church through these prayer and worship meetings that they're having. They elect new officers. And then, as we read in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the Holy Spirit falls on the church. The church was born out of prayer. And this is, I made this point around Christmas time, that the reason that Jesus became incarnate, the reason God sent Jesus to us, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is as an answer to the prayers of His people. People were praying for the Messiah, and God answered people's prayers by sending Jesus to be born in the flesh and be our Savior. That was an answer to prayer. And just here... Pentecost happened. The new covenant church was launched because his people prayed for it. And that's not irrelevant or insignificant. That's part of the equation. That God has these things he's going to accomplish, but he has us fully engaged in the process. So that he uses our prayers and answers our prayers to bring about his purposes. And that fills your prayer, Christian, with meaning and significance and importance. Because if God's going to do things in response to prayer, then we better pray those prayers. And of course, God's sovereign. He's working on our hearts to encourage us to pray and to motivate us to pray. And He's always at work doing in us and for us His good pleasure. But we're fully engaged. We are part of the process. And the Holy Spirit fell on the church and Pentecost happened because people were praying for the fire to come. For the Spirit to fall. And the reason they were encouraged to pray for is because Jesus promised that if they prayed for it, it would come. 
That was, that's chapter 1. Go and wait in Jerusalem and the promise of the Spirit will come. And so why wouldn't they ask him for it? If they know they're going to get what they ask for, of course they're going to ask. The Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. And once the church is born, Peter stands up and he preaches the Pentecost sermon. And 3,000 people are converted in a day in one meeting. This prayer meeting turned into a revival meeting. As the Spirit didn't just land on them with fire, but He empowered and inflamed the preaching of Peter, and He pricked the hearts of the unbelievers, and He turned 3,000 unbelievers into disciples that day. In Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41, as Peter is telling them the gospel, and they respond in faith. The church throughout the early chapters of Acts is sustained and strengthened through prayer. In chapter 4, after the apostles have been threatened by the Jewish authorities, don't you dare keep preaching in the name of Jesus or you're finished. They said, all right, thank you very much for that warning. And they left and they went home and they had another prayer meeting. And they said, God... Give us more of your spirit so we can be even more bold in the face of those who would silence us from preaching. And in chapter 4, they pray this gorgeous prayer that God would empower them with boldness to keep on speaking with boldness in the face of opposition and persecution. And that he would stretch out his hand and do signs and wonders through the name of Christ. And chapter 4 verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, just like on Pentecost. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, just like on Pentecost. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And it was so effective that in the next chapter, chapter 5... It says that, and more than ever, 514, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And then in verses 15 and 16, the miracles of this outreach ministry of, of the Jerusalem church. They were so effective, so full of the Spirit, so empowered by the Lord that miracles were happening and healings were taking place. And the people were in awe. The people knew that whatever this group of, whatever this group of guys is, these Jesus followers, we know one thing for sure. God is with them. And God is mighty for them in ways that we never dreamed. God is at work in their midst. The people could see God at work among them, doing His wonders, empowering His Word, dispensing His Holy Spirit. The fire kept falling and the flame burned brighter and people saw it and they gave glory to God. All of this is born out of these prayer meetings that the church is having. Everything started with prayer. When the church devoted itself to prayer, the Spirit filled the disciples and fueled the disciples for their ministry. It filled the church with power it gave the church its growth. It gave the church its effectiveness. Prayer was vital. It was vital to the church. And this brings us to the second point, that prayer was, in a way, prayer was like the blood that was coursing through the veins of the body of Christ. 
You think of the body of Christ in a very organic way that as a church, we're filled with the Spirit and the, the thing that's flowing through the veins of the body of Christ is the prayer, the prayers of the saints. You know, in, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 17, verse 14, there's this very interesting statement where God says, the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. The blood is the thing that gives life to the body. And the church... If it's going to be alive, it needs to have a healthy flow of blood throughout the whole body. The life is in the blood. And we know from, from medical science that it's the blood that carries oxygen to the other parts of the body. It oxygenates the, the body and it spreads to the various parts of our bodies. And in the same way, prayer carries the spiritual oxygen. It carries the Holy Spirit through the church. And just like the body without the Spirit is dead, a church that does not have the vital blood of prayer flowing through its body doesn't have the Spirit keeping us alive. The body without the spirit is dead, and without prayer, the church becomes anemic. We lose our stamina. We don't have the strength we used to have. If our blood is thin, then you wonder why we can't get warm. The thin blood, it's just it's harder to get warm. You're colder. And as a body, it's hard for the fire to burn brightly in us if we don't have the Spirit. And sometimes we need to realize we don't have the Spirit because there's something lacking. The blood's not flowing. It's not getting to that part of the body like it should. And without that oxygen, without that air, the church begins to suffocate. It's hard to breathe. And if you've ever been a member of a suffocating, dying church, it is not a good place to be. And you can just tell. I've heard, I've heard people tell me before, like I, I went and visited a church and, and it was just dead. There was no life in the place. Worship was flat. The prayers were just bland. The, the, the people were sour and the preaching was, was just... Like, does this guy even believe what he's saying? And it was just, and there's no outreach, and there's no ministry, and there's, there's people look glum, and, and it's just, it's just a, it's just, it's just it's a suffocating place to be. It's not a good place to be. And you gotta wonder, when's the last time that church was devoted to prayer, and was calling down fire from heaven upon the ministries and upon the people, and wanted that vital energy from heaven to course through them again? Where is it? Where's the life? The life's in the blood. The blood is prayer, and if you're not praying, you're lifeless. 
And a church will just become this bloodless, cold husk that just needs to be buried. Yeah, they're still opening the doors and there's still some people coming in and out. But man, it's, it's the walking dead over there. They have been zombies for a while. And there are whole denominations like that. God help us not to be like that. And we won't be if we, re, if we regain this devotion to prayer that the early church had. And it's true not just of a church, but it's true of us as individuals as well. If we have a cold, lifeless walk with the Lord that just feels distant and empty and not vibrant, not, or you just feel stuck, nothing's happening it seems, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not praying. You could be faithful in prayer and still feel go through a dry season. So don't hear me wrong. But it's important to at least ask yourself the question, is the reason I'm going through a dry spell because... I'm not praying like I used to. I'm not engaging with the Lord. I'm not in constant communion and fellowship with Him in a consistent, disciplined way so that I can keep growing. Is my discipleship bloodless and weak and lifeless? The Spirit hasn't stirred in me in a long time. It might be. It might be, Christian. Search your heart. It might be because we've lost our devotion to prayer. But we should be encouraged that when we see the early church praying and we see God doing the things that he did through the prayers of his people in the early church, that we are encouraged to, to pray and to expect God to do great things with us as well. To be encouraged that if we will rededicate ourselves to prayer, then we can grow. We can be vibrant and strong and healthy in our own personal walk with the Lord and in our, in our Christian relationships with each other here, and in our church as a body, in our ministries and committees and programs and the things that we're doing in our worship, we can be on fire again. Now, Pentecost was a one-time thing. We're not going to literally have the tongues of fire coming down. But the apostles were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They got filled again in chapter 4. You can be filled more than once. Now, you have the Holy Spirit, but the filling of the Spirit, where He rushes upon us with His power in a fresh and mighty way, that's what I'm talking about when I say the fire can fall again. Without us turning into charismatics and being weird. Just, I'm not afraid of using this language, right? God, send, let the fire fall. Let the wind blow. Send the glory down. Let's go. And you got to be okay as, just, as you know, t stiff Presbyterians of praying like that. When I became Presbyterian, the first thing that changed was my posture. <laughs> Is this what it's supposed to feel like? No, not all the time. <laughs> we need to pray for some life, right? And I'm not saying that we don't have it, but I'm, I'm saying let's pray for that next level. Let's push through to that next level. And this takes me to the last point today. Find an upper room. Find an upper room. Build an upper room in your schedule in your daily schedule. Go into that thing and carve out some space and build you an upper room. Boom, right here. Daily, I'm here in prayer. Or weekly, right here. Or whatever it looks like for you and your schedule and your needs and you, you know you better than me. 
But build an upper room into your schedule and make it a holy of holies, an inner sanctum. And you crawl into that place and you know I'm meeting with Almighty God in that place. And I'm asking for the Spirit in ways that I couldn't dream of. Right there. And invite others into that upper room with you. And devote yourselves to prayer. Build that upper room into your family relationships and dynamic. So that you and your spouse or you and your kids or you as a family. Once a week, boom, we're going to have an upper room moment. It could be five minutes. It could be ten. It doesn't... Again, Paul's used wisdom. Colossians 1. He says, with all wisdom. So you figure out what's wise and best for you. But build that upper room into your schedule. Build it into your family time and have some family worship. Build it into your relationships with your friends and accountability partners and your brothers and sisters here at church. Build it in. Find an upper room where you can gather with fellow believers and devote yourself to prayer and feel that life surge back into you. I mean, I want to feel alive in my Christian walk. I don't want it to just be mediocre and, and just getting by. I want to soar. I want to surge. I want to, I want to go. I want to move. I want the power. I want the fire. I want it to be real. And I want people around me to see that it's real. You know, I pray God set me on fire and then let people watch me burn for you. Not so I can get a pat on the back, but so that you can get the glory. Find an upper room, Christian. As a session, we want to set the pace. We want to raise the standard for an upper room type ministry right here for us at the Forks. We want to put upper rooms in place for you so that we all can grow together through the discipline of discipleship. We want to help build some habits and raise some expectations around here about disciplined Christian maturity. Because we want you and us together to be a healthy, holy, happy church that sees fruit and effectiveness. We want it to be, we don't want it to be winter in here all the time where it's cold and there's no fruit on the trees and there's no leaves and no green. We want it to be summertime. And where the Spirit of God is, as Luther said, it's always spring. He's always there warming our hearts. And causing things to grow and come to life and bear fruit. And we want to help that happen here in any way that we can. And so in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, there's going to be more information coming about things we have planned. But one of the things we want to do, we, wanna, we want to relaunch a home group focused ministry here at the Forks. And we want everybody... To make a good faith effort to be involved in some way. To participate. We want to give you every opportunity to be plugged in. To have an upper room. So we have Sunday night prayers. And tonight because of the weather we won't be here in person. But Bill said we can have a Zoom link. Six o'clock. And you can Zoom in. And we can pray together that way. Uh, when we meet together uh, at different times for fellowship, we can pray. When we get together in these home groups, we can first and foremost commit ourselves to having these as upper room ministries. And that's how you can think about it. If you don't like home group, 
If that has bad connotations because you were in a bad one a long time ago or didn't get anything out of it, great. Forget it. Don't call it homeroom. Upper room. <laughs> it's not home group, it's upper room. Think about it of these are places where we're going to get together and we are going to pray. We'll do the other things that discipleship includes and we'll talk about those in the next couple of weeks. But as more info comes out, just be thinking even now and praying that God will show you how you can find an upper room and be filled with the Spirit. We want you to have as many opportunities as we can give you to pray. It's our earnest expectation and desire as elders in the church that everyone attempt to join us as we raise the bar on our discipleship in 2022. So come with me, church. Come with us as we head up the mountain and we push higher up and farther in and we cry out for the Spirit for revival and reformation to happen in ourselves, in our homes, in our church, and in our community. Let us do what Scripture says. Let us devote ourselves to prayer and find it to be the joy, the sweet hour of prayer that it is. And let us see what God will do. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed bless our church with the lifeblood of discipleship, that you would cause the blood to flow through this body once again, that you would, uh, that you would encourage those who are already here, who have a vibrant living prayer life with you, that you would give them such joy and comfort in knowing that they have this close relationship with you, and I pray you would give them more. We, we are so thankful for those who are walking strong with you, and many of us are, and I thank you for them. And we give you the credit for that. We can't take credit for that. We give you the glory for it. And for those of, our, uh, those of us here who, who used to have a better prayer life, and it's fallen to the wayside, and it's just not something, and maybe before we eat, but nothing else, then that's about all it is. Or maybe on Sunday mornings we, we pray along, and that's about all we have. Lord, help us. Convict our hearts. Encourage us. Don't let us be racked with guilt, but let us be encouraged with excitement that, yeah, our prayer life has fallen to the side, but you are here now giving us your word, calling us higher up and farther in and encouraging us with the example of the early church. And I pray that you would fill us with a, with a passion for prayer and that you would give us joy as we commune with you in prayer and that we would see our prayers answered that we would see you do mighty things with us so lord i'm excited about our church about the forks church and i thank you that i am here and that i can take part in some way in what you're going to do with us and so encourage us empower us let this let your spirit fall upon us afresh and anew fill us and do great things, mighty things that glorify you and that blow our minds and that let other people around us know there is a God in this place and he is mighty and he is good and he is strong to save and he has a word of hope in Christ for them and we will be the ones who carry the light forward. So fill us up, Lord. Fill us up. May we devote ourselves to you and to prayer and find in it our greatest joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.